Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. This episode of the Compliance Guy today is Thursday, 11th day of May in 2023. And I am joined by two of my very favorite people, Ashley Morgan and Robert Lyles. And this is the Compliance Guy, Legal with Lyles Parker. And with that said, we have a great episode today. I'm, I'm so excited to do this one, and, and, and partly because it was my idea. Uh, I reached out to Robert and I said, man, have I got to tell you what's going on? And I should have known Robert already knew what was going on because he's in the thick of it. So anyways, we're going to talk about the appeals process, but we're not talking about the basic appeals process. We're talking about the corruption that exists once you receive a favorable finding from an administrative law judge who acted within the law within the parameters of the rules that are established by the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals, only to find their judicial decision-making called into question by a third-party organization that also has a conflict of interest because they have engagement at the second level of the appeals process. Now, I know there's been a sell of a company and some other stuff, when one corrupt organization gets out of the way, it just makes room for another corrupt organization to fill their void. And if you could tell that there's a little bit of piss and vinegar in my voice today, it's because there is. So we're going to be talking about a, a program called the ADQUIC. It's the Administrative Qualified Independent Contractor. And they are, quote unquote, the watchdog over the judges at the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals. The problem is they're only a watchdog when the judges rule against the reconsideration level, which is level two, which is the qualified independent contractor. So what I wanna talk about, first of all, is, God, I kinda jumped the gun. We need to set the foundation. So let's set the foundation by first talking about the Medicare administrative appeals process. So, um, Robert, I know I let Ashley go first last time. So this time I'm going to let her go first again. So, <laughs> Ashley, why don't you lead us into the initial conversation with the um, Medicare administrative um, appeals process? And then, Robert, I want to get into talking about some of the really specific um you know, percentages of how these, these cases turn out. Okay. Okay. So a basic overview of the Medicare appeals process is um, for a post-payment audit or even a prepayment audit. Um, there is a specific laid out appeals, administrative appeals process that providers go through. So for example, in a post-payment audit situation, a provider is typically going to get a um, initial request for, for documents, either from a UPIC or potentially from a MAC, if it's an ADR, um, like a and, and they'll get a decision. And the MAC is the one who issues the initial determination. It comes in the form of a demand letter and that starts uh, provider's appeal rights. And so when a provider gets a demand letter, they have an opportunity to file for a level one appeal, which is called a request request for redetermination that goes to your Medicare administrative contractor and they will issue a decision. And um, you have 120 days to file that appeal. Then they usually issue a decision within 60 days. Once you get that, that first level decision back, um, then you will have an opportunity to file a level two appeal, which is called a request for reconsideration that goes to a qualified independent contractor. We call that the quick. And they also will issue a decision within about 60 days. 
And then once you get your quick decision, your reconsideration decision, you do have an opportunity to file a request for ALJ hearing. And you get 60 days to file that request for ALJ hearing. And um, they're supposed to do a hearing within a certain amount of time. There's been a very long backlog for a significant period of time. They've been working through that backlog. We are seeing cases uh, get uh, scheduled for hearings in a more timely manner now. But, you know, historically for the last, you know, several years, it's been, you know, anywhere from a two to five to seven year wait to get a hearing scheduled for an ALJ hearing. Um, and then once you have the hearing and you get the ALJ decision back, which historically also has taken a long amount of time, I've had cases that after we actually finally have the hearing, it takes at least another year to get the decision. Um, but once you get that decision back, there is another level of appeal at the Medicare Appeals Council. And if a provider has an unfavorable decision, obviously they can exercise their right to appeal to the Medicare Appeals Council. But if they get a favorable decision, then there is a group that Sean referred to called the ADQUIC who reviews that decision and can escalate it to the council for review, to review the ALJ's decision to see if it was correct. So essentially they're appealing the case on behalf of CMS. So a couple of things. It's a great breakdown. So a couple of things. One, is it true that at level two, if the quick is slow, they're not quick, if they're slow, you can actually request that it be escalated from the quick up to the administrative law judge without first getting your review determination from that contract. Yes, you can. Okay. It's probably not a good idea because in today's administrative framework, you probably want to take advantage of that level. Frankly, we're winning more cases at redetermination and reconsideration than we have in prior years. Mm -hmm. So, Robert, let me ask you this question. Is it true that the majority of providers out there don't actually appeal their claims past the reconsideration level? And if so, why? It's a very interesting question, and 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 uh, uh, kind of looking at the big picture, you have to kind of keep in mind, 42% of all Medicare beneficiaries these days are signed up for an Advantage plan. And as a result, you know, if they have a problem or if you're a provider and, and the payer denies your claim, you're not going to be going through this process that we're talking about today. So we've already talked about cutting the funnel down almost in half of the cases they have to worry about. And then when it makes it to reconsideration, the fact is that that, believe it or not, um, uh, last year, for instance, last fiscal year, literally zero percent of providers decided to uh, uh, take advantage of what you just talked about, which is, it, you know, advance it to an ALJ and not wait for the quick. Nobody did that. Probably a good idea. Um, but if they didn't prevail at the quick, believe it or not, only five percent of all providers advance the case to an ALJ, which is just mind boggling to me because you've done all the work. And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for it, perhaps. I mean, maybe, you know, not everybody is Sean Weiss. You have an extensive background arguing cases in front of an ALJ. A lot of people don't. And, you know, it's one thing to submit something in paper. It's another thing to have to get on the phone or a video these days and actually talk to the judge and explain why you feel what you feel and why this qualifies for coverage and payment. That may turn some people off. It could be that, that uh, you know, uh, I think the, the most important reason is because you can only put off recoupment until you get that decision, okay? And, you know, a lot of providers will just say, I'm just gonna throw in the towel. Yeah. I, I, I can't go through this any, any longer. Let me ask you a quick question. It's a little bit off topic, but it's on topic. You brought up Medicare uh, managed care, right? Yeah. Medicare Part C. Is it true or is it not true? true. Is it true or false that a Medicare Part C program does not have to follow the rules of traditional Medicare? That's true. They do not. They do not. So if United Healthcare 
as an example, says, we don't subscribe to the coverage guidance issued by Medicare. And under our Medicare Part C program that we administer on behalf of CMS, we don't want to cover this service. Or we're going to make it so restrictive that, you know, the providers can't comply with it. You said that United Healthcare, as an example, has a right to do that, to say we're going to institute United Healthcare's policies over this Medicare supplemental plan. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So my question is if CMS pays for a service and they say absolutely, and this is our national coverage determination, but United says absolutely not. We're we're not following Medicare, we're not playing by their rules. If you file an appeal on a Medicare supplemental plan, who does it get filed to? You would it goes with the advantage plan. It doesn't it does not go through the traditional Medicare appeals process. And that is horrible. Mm-hmm. Because providers nor beneficiaries, and I hope our listeners are paying very close attention to this. Because this is where the train goes off the tracks. Because you have the first part of the verbiage, which is Medicare. But then you have the second the second portion of that, which is supplemental plan. Mm-hmm. I have my mother who calls me all the time. It's so expensive, Sean. Medicare Part B, I'm paying so much money for it. J.J. Walker and Joe Namath say that if I go on to the Medicare Humana plan, I get free meals, I get free transportation, I get everything for free. I get hearing, dental. And I said to her, listen, you're lucky I'm your son and I love you because otherwise this conversation would go completely different. You are not going on to a Medicare supplemental plan because there is nothing for free. And once you go on to that supplemental plan, good luck trying to get back onto traditional Medicare because Medicare doesn't even want to be in the business of claims processing anymore. Mm -hmm. They want 100% of all of their beneficiaries on a supplemental plan by 2030. Mm -hmm. That's right. So that means OMA is going to go away and it will be left basically to United Blue Cross Humana, Cigna, and Aetna. Which is scary because it's like the Wild West. I mean, you can say we can complain and I will complain all day about the Medicare process, but at least there's a standard process that they're supposed to follow. Um, Yeah, with the the private payers, they make their own rules. And there's not a lot of people telling them that their rules are incorrect. So Yeah, and, and, and what's troubling about that is that it is based on everything other than the federal guidelines. Mm-hmm. It's it's basically we're United Healthcare, we're the supplemental administrator for the Medicare plan. We know it's Medicare, we know Medicare has NCDs and LCDs and LCAs and all kinds of regulations and rules, but we're not following it. Mm-hmm. We're going to do what we want because we're United Healthcare and you're not. That's right. Yeah. Let me tell you something, folks. It ain't getting any better. No. In, in fact, Sean, sorry about my absence. We had some technical issues here. Uh, but I shared a document with you from a, from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Which kind of laid out the fact that CMS essentially wants out of healthcare. I mean, yeah. they want everybody to switch over to Advantage. That's mm-hmm. what Ashley and I were just talking about before you so abruptly and rudely disconnected. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that, actually. We were talking about the fact that Medicare said by 2030 they want 100% of all beneficiaries. See, you even missed me doing my mother's voice. <laughs> you missed so much I'm sorry. in the two minutes that you were gone. <laughs> Poor Ashley was stuck with me. All right, so... Let's let's talk about 
let's talk about a couple of things. <clears throat> um, let's talk about first the fact that it has become much more difficult to prevail at the administrative law judge level. Uh, I remember in the 90s when I first got into this aspect, right? I started in healthcare in 1989. By 1995, I had moved into the consulting aspect of stuff and, you know, dissemination of Medicare rules and regulations, um, you know, uh, coding and billing guidelines, stuff like that. And, you know, that was my first foray and entrance into working with members of Congress, right? And watching all the legislation start to change. Well, I remember back in the mid to late 90s, right? Uh, Ashley's too young to know this. Robert will remember this. You used to have like a 90% chance of prevailing at administrative law judge level back back in the mid to late 90s. And I mean, in those days, the judges were Social Security Administration that's judges. That's right. And they would travel around kind of like the old uh, circuit judges that, that yep. take a horse back to town. You would actually meet with the judge in person in your town. And just so everybody knows, Robert is speaking from personal experience because he was around when the judges used to show up in horse and buggy. <laughs> what a truth to that. So, but that's the truth, right? Because... Yeah. When, when, when I, I remember when I first started in like 1997 was the first time I did an administrative law judge hearing. And I mean, we were getting 90 to 95% of our cases overturned at the ALJ. And it was, you know, we were like, listen, go through the first two levels of appeal. We don't care whether or not you prevail. Uh-huh. We're, we're not going to spend a lot of time, effort, or energy other than making sure everything that we want to submit to the ALJ is in order so that we don't have to come up with a good cause reason for why we didn't submit information. But let's just get it to the ALJ. It's not that way anymore. And, and I think part of the reason is the Social Security Administration judges were primarily responsible for hearing the appeals of beneficiaries. Okay. Yes. And, and with beneficiaries, Great. you have to understand that... You know, there's something called the treating physician rule. And under the Social Security Administration rules, the treating physician rule, it stands for this idea that the treating physician, the, per- the person that put their hands on the patient, ought to be in the best position to say whether or not the services were medically necessary. Okay. Makes common sense. But that is not the way it's applied when it comes to Medicare. Okay. Uh, so, so on the Social Security Administration side, if someone's trying to get Social Security benefits, they would apply the, that version of the treating physician rule. But, but they specifically said that it does not apply with Medicare. So when we used to have the Social Security Administration judges, they were very, I think they were sympathetic to this idea that the providers were providing the services. They, they felt they were medically necessary because they were ordered by a third party. And if they provided them and the documentation was halfway decent, they would rule in our favor. So for, for those of you that are not familiar with what Robert's talking about, he's talking about Rule 26A2C of the Social Security Act, which is the treating physician rule, which put simply, as Robert said, the treating physician rule required a Social Security Administrative Law Judge or ALJ to defer to the medical opinions of your doctor so long as the opinion was supported by objective medical evidence and not inconsistent with the rest of the medical record that you created. And it compelled the Secretary of Health and Human Services to give deference to the treating physician rule. There was actually a great case. It was Holland v. Sullivan. Um, For those of you that wonder why I know this stuff, it's because I don't sleep and I have nothing else in my life going on other than healthcare. So Holland v. Sullivan was a fantastic case. And the judge actually in that case said, listen, we would expect that the secretary of health and human services give deference to the treating physician rule. And in the absence of definitive language that referred to generally accepted standards of medical practice, even in the face of evidence contradicting what the physician believed, to use Robert's words, as the person who places their hands on the patient who's best positioned to know what goes on, 
even if the information is contradictory, you still have to give deference to the treating physician because they know better of what's going on with their patient. But they did away with the treating physician rule. They did a rule. They did away with Rule Twenty Six A Two C. So we don't have when a treating physician claims. rule anymore. That's right. When it comes to Medicare claims, yeah. Well, Social Security claims. We still yeah. have it for Medicare claims. We make the argument for Medicare. Well, we make all the argument all the time. But yes. that, yeah, their position is that the CMS's position, and I understand it, is that 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 you have to look at a cold record. And if the record on its face does not support medical necessity and coverage, then it can't be paid, regardless of the fact that the treating physician may have ordered it, may have thought that it was appropriate and the rest of it. You know, they rely solely on the paper. That's kind of their position. I understand it. I don't agree with it. I still think a treating physician, if you're going to have one come in as a, as a witness, you know, it's not uncommon for them to say, look, I don't have an hour to write down all the reasons why I thought this was important, but I, I know this patient. I know him inside and out. This is something that was medically necessary at that time. Yeah. So so let's talk about the dynamic shift that happened, right? Um, with the ALJs, because we went from seeing Robert, you know, back when, you know, back in the nineties, when we were doing this thing, you know, we went from seeing 90 to 95% of all of the cases that were being submitted being wholly favorable to now. I, I don't even know how bad the percentage is, but it's like, is anyone actually reading the arguments that are being made by the appellant? Because some of the the, the 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 reviews that we're getting back from the ALJs yeah. make absolutely zero sense. We're like, that's not even what we put as an argument. Well, I think that that you've got the statistics there. Though in uh, this year so yeah. far, I believe that what eighteen percent, only eighteen percent of all claims are being found to be fully favorable. Mm-hmm. You know now. That, that that's if you take the claims globally, you know, a, a million claims that they're looking at. That's not right. the cases necessarily. But but that's a that's a sea change. I mean, that's a very and the problem that and which kind of leads to the real reason we're here to talk is if you're only going to win 12 percent of the claims and then you've got this third party that comes in afterwards and the ones where you did win. They start, you know, second guessing the judge who we all agree is overworked, underpaid and is having a hard time getting these decisions out. OK, so they don't put all the time into them that they would love to put into them, probably to be as thorough and as solid in their in their decisions as they'd like to be. The ad quick, essentially, if it's if it involves one of about a dozen different areas, they will be the first to to uh, uh, file a referral. Now, it's not called an appeal. It's called a referral, but let's be real. It's an appeal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And essentially they're looking over the ALJ shoulder and they're saying, no, we don't like that. We don't like that you kicked this out or that you didn't like the extrapolation. We're going to refer it, appeal it to the council. And then the council, it's, it's really a fix. The whole thing is, is just a charade because then the council supposedly on its own motion which is ridiculous because they didn't even know about the case until it was referred to them by the ad quick on its own motion decides to look at it. Okay. Yep. So that's kind of how, from a mechanical standpoint, it takes place. Well, I got to tell you, judge Allen, who's the chief administrative law judge is not happy about this. I can tell you that right now because his attorney adjudicators, his ALJs, yeah. They're, they're supposed to be de novo cases. They're supposed to be able to rule based on, you know, not precedent, not prior cases or case law, right? Because this isn't federal district court. This is Medicare rules and regulations, which we all know, you know, we're dealing with a bunch of quasi regulations. We're dealing with, you know, sub-regulatory guidance documents outside of NCDs, right? Even the program integrity manual for all intents and purposes is quasi regulatory guidance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, they don't put that through the federal register. No. So at at what point, at what point does somebody stand up, raise their hand and say, this is a bunch of garbage. This is a scam. And, and can we talk a little bit, Ashley, am I correct in the fact that there is a conflict of interest between 
the level two qualified independent contractor versus the ad quick is there a conflict of interest because i know at one point they were owned by the same parent company at, at one point um they were so maximus did used to be the ad quick they the ad quick was was sold maximus sold the ad quick i believe in 2020 um so they no longer own it and it has not been disclosed who now owns the ad quick portion uh so i'm not sure who it is now but maximus they're it's they the were, wife of the former owner of maximus <laughs> does stark apply in that situation by chance <laughs> or the anti-kickback statute does something apply there probably go not. ahead I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> I, i'm just in a i'm just in a mood today i'm telling you but you're right maximus was a quick they were quick. So they were deciding decisions of reconsideration that were then going on to the ALJ. And then they're the ad quick that's going to refer them up to, to the council. And so some people will say that, yeah, that's two bites of the same. You know, you get two bites of the apple. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in, in criminal law, they call that double jeopardy. Uh, it's um, it's a mess, Sean. It really is. And I don't blame the judges. I don't even blame them about the fact that the numbers have gotten... Uh, uh, so low. I mean, frankly, if you look at the numbers over the last quarter, they're higher than they were uh, the end of 2022. Yeah. Now, you know, Ashley and I have our own thoughts about that. I think that these guys are so under the gun and under the microscope that they're pushing this stuff out. And if you have a reasonable argument, we've seen a lot of cases that we've, that we've won. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but um, I think the days when we used to win most of them, Sean, are over. Those days are over. And I do think a lot of it has to be attributed to the fact that it's a different mindset of ALJ than what we dealt with with the Social Security Administration. So so that I know there's a lot of other questions because I want to talk about the AdQuick program itself. Right. I want to talk yeah. about, you know, the steps of it. But I want to jump forward because my mind is just racing right now. So are, are, are in your opinion, are you saying that like what I said previously, which was, hey, in the old days, we used to say, don't worry about level one or level two. Let's get it to the ALJ because we know we're going to prevail there. Are we now at the point of saying, let's not worry about the first four levels of the Medicare administrative process? Because that's all it is. This is not a legal process. They they don't have control over life, liberty, or freedom. Well, right? no, it's administrative. I think we've turned it back on its head. Now, what we say is we'll worry about the ALJ if we ever get there. Right. But now, we focus, now we focus really on, in, in a perfect world, clients would call us when they first get the letter requesting records. Okay. Right. And then we do a complete review, make sure that it's, that, that it's all proper. We do claim summaries and submit those with them. And many times, you know, just because of the claim summaries, we've, you know, our client has avoided a significant overpayment to begin with. <clears throat> so that's, so we deal with it before it goes to reconsideration or, or redetermination. And then we put out, we really pull out all the stops at redetermination and reconsideration. We even attack the extrapolation at the lower levels. And Ashley has had a fair amount of success getting extrapolations knocked out at these earlier levels, which was unheard of 10 years ago. Well, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but chapter eight of the Medicare program integrity manual, they have just made a significant update to it with respect to how judges are to look at the extrapolation process and sampling. They've completely turned it on its head. But where I was going with my comment, and, and I'll send you guys this whole thing, Frank Cohen about lost his mind when we were at, HC, at HCCA because the the announcement was made. But where I was going with this was, do we just not worry about the first four levels of the appeals process and prepare to go to federal district court? Because we know at federal district court, we'll get to produce witnesses, experts, right? Clinical experts, coding billing experts, regulatory experts. No. You know, you know I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like CMS is forcing providers to have to litigate this stuff in federal court. That's what I feel like. I, I may be completely wrong, but I mean, I, I am getting on average three calls a day, three calls a day from attorneys, both 
prosecutors and defense counsel who have these exorbitant overpayment demands that have been forced upon their, their, you know, either they're going after them or it's been forced upon them as a defense counsel asking us to engage in these, you know, um, uh, federal district court uh, cases. I mean, I've, I've never had so much litigation work thrust upon me as I've had since the end of the public health emergency. I mean, it, 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 the floodgates are wide open. I mean, I know you're saying pull out all the stops at the first two levels, yeah. but you guys obviously have, have found the secret sauce, but for many attorneys that are engaging in this kind of work or for consultants that are trying to do this kind of work, they may not have figured out the secret sauce yet. Well, the, the problem with what you're proposing Mm-hmm. is when you appeal a case from the council level to federal courts, the burden of proof is that all the government has to show is that there was substantial support. That's the key words here, okay? Now, substantial report to a layperson like me and you and and and, and Ashley with our layperson hat on sounds like a lot. Substantial sounds to me like almost 50, you know, a lot, 51%. No, substantial means if there is a scintilla of evidence in support of what the council decided, a federal judge is not does not have the ability to overturn that administrative decision. So it's really right now you're talking about a different situation. You're talking about really, let's say that you do uh, uh, every level, you advance it further because they take so long. OK, so that there is no administrative record, because most of these cases that go to federal court, the judges rely on the administrative record. But if they don't create an administrative record, then what happens in federal court? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I haven't had that case yet. There's almost there's always been an administrative record. I guess my concern is most of the people that are going to be listening to this that are doing Medicare appeals are not well healed enough to want to file a complaint in federal court. It's not an inexpensive process. Oh, yeah. You know, and the other thing to kind of think about is, and this is something that people don't like to talk about, but when you file a case in federal court, you're taking it out of the realm of administrative folks, and you are putting that case file on the on the table of a federal prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I know that, it, you know that the folks listening to this are doing the right thing for the right reasons, have nothing to hide. But do you really want to put your dirty laundry when it comes to your documentation and all the rest of this in front of a federal prosecutor? Eh, I'm sure you'd probably rather avoid it. You know, so there are a lot of reasons why I think federal court is not the way to go with these cases. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not again, you, you always make much more sense than what I make. But I, I just look at it from the perspective of being completely frustrated, yeah, seeing mm-hmm. what's going on, hearing the frustration. And the vo- I mean, we just put to, we just put forward an incredible case for a neurology group in the Northeast, and we got a wholly favorable finding. Mm-hmm. Judge was on our side, not because he was against the quick, but because the quick was wrong. Mm-hmm. The Folks at the redetermination were wrong. And now this judge who acted not only in good faith, but acted within the parameters of the guidelines established under the LCDs and followed the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, Chapter 3, Section 3.6.6, which talks about in the absence of an LCD, medical necessity is the driving factor. Followed all of that, only to now receive a letter with a CC to Judge MacArthur Allen, who's the chief of the administrative law judges, saying, we feel that you misapplied the law, you didn't do it correctly, and now we're asking the appeal council to get involved and make a decision on what you did. Because it doesn't benefit us. It's a scam. Am I wrong? Well, that's 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 their job. You know, the problem is that there aren't very many tools um, that have been put out there for providers other than, you know, providers make mistakes. 
But there are certain tools that that you can assert, such as 1879 of the Social Security Act, 1870 of the Social Security Act, and, and Ashley can go into more details about those. Uh, but but those are are the kind of things where well maybe we weren't perfect, but we didn't know at the time that what we were doing was not did not qualify for coverage and payment, and we think we should be in any overpayment should be waived. You know, and any time that a judge in good faith decides, you know what, under the facts and circumstances, I agree with you. I think you acted like a reasonable person would act. I think you think I think that you were uh, under the impression that, that this was proper and I'm going to waive the overpayment. Every one of those cases that I've seen, the ad quick always refers to the to the uh, council. Just like you're familiar, you know, all the extrapolation cases where they kick mm -hmm. out the extrapolation. All those cases are being referred to the council. Now, I, I, I don't know if it's all of them, but all the ones that I'm aware of, you know, so we have to when we get an extrapolation knocked out. I mean, there are some extrapolations. Ashley, you can talk about this more than me. Uh, why don't you kind of talk about. Some yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Ashley. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when we see cases come back from the ALJ, the, the cases that we typically see that do not typically get referred by an ad quick are cases where we are successful on the claims. Um, for example, I've seen a case where we won 100% of the claims, but the uh, statistical sampling was still considered to be valid. So it was partially favorable. Uh, <laughs> there were no claims left to extrapolate on. That case did not get referred to the council, but every case where we've gotten the extrapolation knocked out, those get referred cases where we convince the judge that the um, liability should be waived because the coverage rules are confusing. So how would a provider ever know that these wouldn't qualify for coverage and payment? Those get referred to, to the council. And so we get these decisions back that are great. And but we have to go to our clients and say, listen, we got this great result, but we have to sit and wait for 60 days because there is a, a very good chance that this will get referred to the council. And the problem with that too, is that the ad quick waits until the very last moment to notify you that they're going to appeal. And if you only are successful, or sorry, I shouldn't say it like that, but if they, if they, they throw out the extrapolation, but they find that a, a large number of the claims are still, uh, still do not qualify for coverage and payment. Well, the provider, if you are going to want to appeal that decision, if the extrapolation is going to get referred, you're going to want to file an appeal on that, but they might not necessarily want to appeal and, and utilize those resources if the ad quick's not going to refer the case. But that in most cases, we don't find out that the ad quick is referring the case until like the very last day to file an appeal. Well, it's almost like, it, so you raise a great point, Ashley. And Robert, I, I know this drives you as crazy as it drives me. And when I'm handling these ALJ matters, 48 hours before the hearing, the QIC is submitting a position paper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what I love about that is they're so they're so careless that they only send it to the judge and they don't send it to the person like myself or they don't send it to counsel. So when the judge says, you know, like this happened in the last case, the judge says, you know, Mr. Weiss, um, I have in my hand here a position paper from the quick um, stating the following. Did you receive a copy of that? Your Honor. I have not. And the judge says, then I find no good cause to admit it. And it gets thrown out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I've, I've had mixed emotions. What are your thoughts on doing a uh, hearing, you know, telephonically with the judge versus doing things on the record? Because for a period of time for me, I didn't want to do telephonic hearings. I didn't want to have to have a doctor who had a behavioral problem on the phone. I didn't want to put somebody on the phone who, you know, the judge, you know, because judges ask witnesses a lot of questions mm -hmm. sometimes. And I didn't want to run the risk of them asking somebody a question who they stumbled and couldn't answer it. Or, you know, the judge says, well, I'm reading your report and in your report, you cited da, 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 da. But I, you know, 
so I, 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 for a long period of time, I wanted to do everything on the record, but now I worry about doing things on the record because of procedural screw ups on the part of the quick <laughs> and taking advantage of those because they don't CC counsel or they don't CC somebody like myself. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do you prefer telephonic versus on the record or what do you like? I prefer doing the telephonic hearings. I really think that it humanizes the case. It reminds the judge that there were patients involved here. These are people. This is a provider who is seeing these patients. This is their job and their career, and they take this very seriously. So I think it's a very unique opportunity that providers should pursue to to speak with the with the the judge and you are right there are risks <laughs> just do ask questions not all of them but they they do i mean they will ask direct questions to the provider so you've got to you know you have to consider your options but i do think that it is a unique opportunity to to provide that human element and, yeah. and remind the judges that these I, are these are beneficiaries who receive care <laughs> i had an i had an attorney who uh, was doing I was doing the hearing with this attorney and I won't disclose the gender of this person because you know it's one less thing to give them away um but this judge absolutely ripped the attorney I had never heard anything like that before actually Robert I emailed you about it mm -hmm. if you remember and not only did the judge rip the attorney, the judge ripped into me um, because he asked like three questions in a row and I gave him, you know, I had all the LCDs in front of me and I gave him the LCD that I thought he was asking for. And unfortunately, I can't say, is there a court reporter who could play back the question for me? So yeah. I, I, I gave him the LCD and he goes, that's not the right. And he yelled, he screamed at me. He was out of New Mexico and he screamed at me and just ripped me. And that, that was my first opportunity to go to uh, the chief uh, judge Allen and be like, you got somebody who's got a real, real problem. <laughs> I, in 30 years, I've never had a judge talk that way to an attorney or to me. And I was like, you, you got somebody who's got a behavioral health issue. You need to deal with this person. But anyways, well, we've been doing these for a long time. We haven't really run across that situation yet, uh, but yeah. I will say judges are, are, are people too. Yes. And, and they have bad days and they have good days, but, but another risk that, that, that we ought to point out, you know, one of my partners, Paul Weidenfeld, he was a federal prosecutor as well. Um, he actually prosecuted a case one time that was referred by an administrative law judge. During the hearing, he identified instances of, of, of fraud after talking to the, uh, uh, the provider, and he turned around and he made a referral to DOJ. So, you know, that's something else to kind of keep in mind is that, I mean, you're on the record. This is sworn testimony. And uh, you can't be making things up. You can't be making false statements because if you make a false statement, that 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 in and of itself can be the basis of a of a crime. And yeah. DOJ does take these cases. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, look how overzealous some of these prosecutors are with the cases that they're bringing. There's no doubt. Yeah. So we started to talk about some of the reasons for an ad quick to make a referral to the appeal council. Mm -hmm. Are there any? of these specific reasons that really jump out to you that make you say, this is something that attorneys, you know, consultants, the providers really need to, to, to understand the risks that could, you know, be out there looming in the dark, in the shadows about the referral that gets made after an ALJ. Um, I mean, I, I think just to be aware and to, to tell your providers when they're going in, through and going through the administrative process that they need to be prepared and a little bit guarded in you know their optimism because of the fact that there is this ad quick that will review the cases and if they do have a, a success on a statistical uh, sampling extrapolation if that gets invalidated there's a very good chance that that's going to get referred if they win based on um 
Section 1879 or Section 1870, very good chance that those are also going to get referred. So I think you just have to, and I, and I also think that knowing that you have to go in, if you're helping a provider go through the appeals process, you have to attack every portion of the decision. You can't just attack the extrapolation. You can't just argue it on waiver. You've got to attack the claims as well. Because like I said, I've seen a case where we've won all the claims and the yeah. extrapolation was still valid, but there, there's no I, money left. To I, I, yeah, I love that both you and Robert brought up um, 1870 of the Social Security Act, because again, to reiterate what Robert and you both said a moment ago, the statutory provision holds that if a provider is without fault and adjustment or recovery would defeat the purpose of Title II or Title uh, 17, of this, I had to stop for a minute and remember my Roman numerals. Title 17 of the Social Security Act and would be against equity and good conscience. Liability may be waived. The whole equity thing is where I think the ad quick looks at and says, nope, we mm -hmm. don't believe in equity. And in some of the cases that we run across, Sean, okay, we're the first to admit our clients were not perfect when it comes to documentation. But the fact is, they did it in good faith. The mm -hmm. patient benefited from the care. They did it at a cost to themselves. And now the government doesn't want to pay for it. Now, mm -hmm. if this was anybody else out there in, in, in private enterprise, the, everybody would be going crazy. That's but right. the government just gets away with it. Mm -hmm. they, that, that's the big secret that nobody wants to talk about. Mm -hmm. They want providers to provide these services, but they don't yeah. really, really want to pay for them. Well, it, well remember, you know, you could sue the government, but guess what? How they have they have unlimited resources. Yeah. That's right. And remember, these contractors to CMS are under the shield and umbrella of the federal government. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they have the federal government's budgets and uh, attorneys to defend their illegal potential illegal activities, That's or right. at least unethical practices of business how crazy is that that if you wanted to sue the UPIC, chances are and this is in the program integrity manual a, a federal prosecutor will be defending them even though they're a private for-profit organization well it's because they're a contracted bounty hunter of the government they're under a government contract so under gsa rules they're protected entities well, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I mean, the AdQuick, it's supposed to do, a, it's very interesting. If you actually look at the AdQuick's homepage yeah. and look at their primary duties that they have listed, yeah. nowhere on there do they say, you know, one of the things that we do also is review the ALJ decisions and decide if we're going to appeal them to the council. No. No. I mean, you have to dig around on the website to even find any evidence that they're doing that. Well, of course, because, you know, it's 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 a hidden agenda. Well, it's it's a mess is what it is. And it is. It's, it's it's hard to explain to clients because they're already paying a lot of money to take through the administrative appeals process. They have mm -hmm. waited a long time to get this far. The government is either they've had to pay it back in, in full or they're having to make payments and they're having the, or, or they're having their their money's recouped. So they're under financial stress. And then now you have to tell them, I know we won, but hold your horses. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right. We're going to end it on that note, which unfortunately it's not a positive note, but it is a note nonetheless. <laughs> so, you know, as I've enjoyed listening to Ashley and Robert talking, I've been distracted by what appeared to be somebody else in my camera. And I realized that it's not that I don't have a chiseled face anymore. It's that I have such an abundance of facial hair that it has made me look like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> so immediately at the conclusion of this podcast, I will be going and shaving my face. All right. So again, I want to say thank you so much to Ashley Morgan and Robert Lyles of Lyles Parker for always taking time out of what I know are incredibly busy schedules, at least they are for Ashley and coming on and joining me and providing such a wealth of information and such incredible insight. 
And one of the things that I want to say about Robert, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, not only is he one of my closest and very best friends, you know, over the last couple of decades, um, he's one of the most brilliant minds when it comes to the law. Um, and one of the things that Robert always does and why I think these segments are quickly becoming the very best segments that we offer from a content standpoint is the amount of preparation that Robert actually does. And, and these sessions, I promise you, are not scripted. But Robert and Ashley are such consummate professionals that they spend an exorbitant amount of time to do critical research to make sure that what we provide, especially me, who sometimes just spouts things out of my head, to make sure that what we're giving is factual, authoritative, and well-sourced, cited information. And that's what has made this segment become one of the most popular and one of the best segments on the Compliance Guy podcast. So thank you so much to Robert and Ashley for taking the time to do that. As always, I want to say thank you to each and every single one of you all for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with me just for a little while. Um, Robert and I are going to be together coming up uh, later on this year at the AMBA conference. Uh, and we're also going to be doing a panel discussion together later this year for the PMI annual. Oh, uh, good. So I'll see you in San Antonio. Yes. Well, they're talking about it now going virtual. So I, I know. I did not know that. Yeah, I got a, I got, I got a call on that. But anyways, we'll take that offline. Our listeners don't really care about that aspect of it. So listen, uh, that's going to do it for this week. Um, we will be back next week with a brand new coding and compliance roundtable on Monday. Can't wait for y'all to join us. Tomorrow will be a previously recorded session with attorneys Amanda Wesh and Joshua LeBeouf of Brennan, Mana, and Diamond. And we'll be talking about the statutory uh, um, rule changes in the state of Florida with respect to tort and uh, personal injury and auto accidents. Mm. So really kind of an interesting uh, uh, conversation, but I'll be back live again next week. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.